this like new generation has this almost like microwavable talent. They're like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put a video up on YouTube and I'm gonna become famous. Or I'm gonna post some things on Instagram, I'm gonna become famous. I mean, or I'm just gonna go and talk to blah blah and I'm gonna become famous. I was like, that's not how it works. The greatest artists, the greatest players all have worked so hard to get to where they are. Yeah. They just don't share their struggle. Hello and welcome to Hot Girls with me, Lex on Decks. This week we are chatting to we, I, and you um, are chatting to Michelle Hung. Michelle is the founder of Edenzine, which is a print magazine created to share stories of entrepreneurship in the creative industries, essentially. I feel like there's a really interesting kind of symbiotic relationship between magazine culture and artist culture. So many of these huge magazines, they kind of, there's almost this mutually beneficial relationship where the two have to work together really well to create a brand around artists. And I find that really interesting. But Michelle's story is particularly interesting because she had a son at a very young age. Uh, She created this scene on the side of a full-time job, uh, first at ASOS and then at Urban Outfitters. But she created it with the ambition to kind of explain to her son the truth behind how people become successful and I guess famous, which was his underlying ambition. She wanted to show him that it was about hard work. It was about consistency. There was a lot more that went into it than just posting something up online and expecting it to go viral. So uh, she came from a very interesting angle to start the zine in the first place. And this is a good interview about really just getting on and doing something, not knowing quite how it's going to work out. So I hope you enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, listen up. You're listening to Hot Girls. With Lex on the deck. We in the mix. It's fire. Keep it going. We on fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. Grew up in South London, born and raised. I grew up with my mom. My mom's Vietnamese and she came from Vietnam when she was about 22. We grew up in like a really small family. My brother, older brother, younger sister. So I'm the middle child. So, you know, I'm that one that's always like striving for attention. And <laughs> I'm middle child as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like... Got to go my own way. <laughs> yeah, basically. So naturally just became like really independent. And yeah, I would say growing up in South London basically molded me. I grew up in a very inner city area. A lot of my friends were from like Caribbean and African households. So naturally I picked up habits from like them, I guess, because my mum is Vietnamese and I didn't live with my dad. I don't know my dad, to be honest. So yeah, so grew up in South London. and um, Those were like your cultural influences, basically. Exactly, yeah. And I used to like, my mum would make like traditional, I guess like Vietnamese food now and again, but then going to my friend's house and they'd make rice and peas and jerk. <laughs> and I was like, I want to learn how to get that. And then just naturally, I kind of went that way. I'm very, very much in touch with like my black culture as well. That's very um, present in South London as well, I think, isn't it? There's like yeah, very much. That rich Caribbean. Yeah, Brixton is rich with that Jamaican influence as well. Yeah. So just going to like Brixton Market and like hearing like reggae music, blasting out. When I was, was going to ask about music. <laughs> but like yeah. Jamaica is like my like favourite music. I saw come out of Jamaica. Yeah, so then just normal kind of growing up, I would say, in like a single parent household, as normal as can be, went to public school. But then I got pregnant at 15 and had my son at 16. And then my world changed very drastically, very quickly, had to grow up really fast. And you can just imagine like at that age, I was like, I'm a big girl, I know everything. And you're like, 
when you look back, you're like, you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're six years old with a baby. Was that scary? Was not normal, but at the time, it wasn't. But looking back, mentally, that didn't, it didn't have a good effect on me because I suffered from postnatal depression for about mm-hmm. two years, but I didn't realise until I'd come out of it. Right. And my mum took a lot of the like burden and the strain. She basically said to me, you can have this baby, but you have to go back to school and you have to do your GCSEs, you have to do your A-levels and I'll help you. And that's what I did. So I went back to school. I went back to school a month after I had my son, that my GCSEs, and then went to college. Did the normal kind of, normal kind of like college university. But it was just, yeah, like I said, my life kind of changed um, for the better when I had my son. So yeah, that's a bit of the background yeah. for me. Yeah. That gives yeah. you responsibility. And, and you got to grow up real fast. Because all of a sudden yeah. you're an adult. Exactly. And you don't you don't realise at that age, in my head, I was like, I'm a big girl, I know it all. But you don't. You quickly realise, actually, you don't. And when I look at 16-year-olds now, even my son, who's 16 now, I look at him and I'm like, you're a baby. I can't even believe I had a baby at your age. Did any of your friends have children? None of my friends had children at that time. But then I got really close. So I lived in like a hostel, like a mother and babies unit. Mm-hmm. And I became really close with another girl there. And I think she had her son at like 17, 18. Uh-huh. Even though it's not really a good thing, but a lot of people within like Lambeth and Southwark had children quite young. The rate for like teenage pregnancy was really high. It wasn't not normal, but 16 is very young. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you then went and did your GCSEs and A-levels, was it creative fields that you kind of naturally, creative subjects that you naturally went for? So when I was doing my GCSEs, I fell in love with media and I loved like my media teacher. She was amazing. At that point, I was like, I need to pick a career path because <laughs> I don't have the luxury of taking a year out and like traveling and stuff like yeah. that. I figure out how I'm going to make money and how, how I'm going to make money doing something that I love. And media was something I really enjoyed. In the beginning, I wanted to be a journalist and then quickly realized that you kind of have to study for a little bit longer <laughs> and do like a lot of other stuff. So I was like, no. And then... I kind of got into TV and film. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed like that stuff. So when I went to college, I think I did film and film and TV or something like that. And I fell in love with background of like making commercials and what goes into like making TV shows. And then went on to uni and did the same thing. So it was almost like I just needed to pick a career path. And that was the career path I knew that I would have fun doing and I could potentially get paid a decent amount of money. Yeah. Um, and then after you graduated, did you go to uni in London? Yeah, so I went to London College of Communication in Elephant and Castle uh-huh. of UAL. And I studied film and TV there. And then did you go into film and TV initially when you first, what was your first job? Do you know what? My first job in that field, I got on the day I graduated. <laughs> I got a call and they was like, hey, we want to offer you the job. And I was like, what? Oh my God, 25K. I was like, oh my God, like imagine <laughs> out of uni 25k it doesn't really sound like much now but at the time I was like that is yeah like, so graduate salary like that's decent yeah thinking in the creative industries so, it basically was making law educational films for like lawyers wasn't creative at all but it was a production job and I enjoyed and I was like okay it's the first job I don't I used mm-hmm. to work in the part-time and I was like I don't have to work there anymore I yes. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it gets me out of that and then I'll work it out <laughs> so yes yeah, so I was there 
for about a year and a bit I was, did I learn much I learned a few things and then I quickly realized that actually I don't know if I want to work in TV necessarily after that job I went and worked for like a small agency that was producing like like a branded agency that did like graphics for TV and uh, one of their biggest clients was Strictly Come Dancing they mm-hmm. worked on broadcast and then from there I went freelance and freelance at Sky for a few months then also realized that I was quite scared freelance ended up working at this agency called Dixon Baxi and I ultimately built my career there so they're like a creative branding agency when I was there they had a lot of broadcast clients like Channel 5, Channel 4 and stuff like that but then they quickly went into the sports world mm-hmm. and they rebranded Eurosport and then from no BT Sport and then from that got a lot of like sports clients. Did you care about sports? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I didn't care about sports, but I knew a lot about it from working in the bookies. And my uh-huh. son played football at the time. So I knew it, but I, no, not really. I loved fashion. Like fashion, in my head, fashion was like a massive thing. And uh-huh. I had a blog on the side, as you do. <laughs> and so that I used to channel a lot of my like creativity. Yeah. Me. Well, that's cool though, because that probably at that point it was just a side interest, and then obviously it's evolved in what well, it's like trained you for. Oh, this is it. The blog was like I think I had it for about four years, and it was I was on the cusp of like getting quite really big with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I got a job at another agency called Cult London, which is predominantly fashion and beauty, and agency site is mental. You're literally mm-hmm. working from like six in the morning to like twelve at night, and so I didn't really have time to like maintain the blog or even maintain yeah. like social life. I was in um, advertising agencies for years. So yeah, yeah, it's my background. So I totally, I don't know exactly what you mean. You don't really have the freedom. And it's not really encouraged, I think, to do other stuff because they kind of (laughs) want to bleed you dry. (laughs) You find, yeah, like you realize clients are messaging you at like 10 in the evening. You're like, this is not okay. Yeah. Okay, because you also don't want to let your manager down or like you don't want to let your client down. So it became very draining very quickly. I realised I don't want to work in an agency anymore. I can't do it. I want a social life. And I went to ASOS and I was at ASOS for a few years and then recently left ASOS December last year and then now I'm at Urban Outfitters. Your role at um, ASOS and then at Urban as well, is that is it more in shooting the clothes or is it more in shooting like the editorial stuff that they do? Everything creative side. I don't get involved with the, the sort of studio. Because <laughs> like, I was like... I, yeah, I feel like those, like, you know, they have those, like, the model walking down, and, like, the white. <laughs> no, so it's all the editorial, the creative campaigns. We do a lot of shoots abroad and stuff. So, it, again, it's still, it's quite mental, but it's nicer because you don't have the strain of having to make money or bring in money from a client, which is nice. Yeah, definitely. Have you settled into the new job well? Like, has that transition been fairly easy? Yeah, it's fairly easy. The team's really lovely. Yeah, fairly easy. It's, it's very similar to ASOS very similar content very similar customer nice yeah so then you obviously got to a point where you decided you wanted to create something where did the initial idea come from what was the spark I'm that person that has like 10,000 things going on at once I almost have to have a job a side hustle another thing like I'm that person so so when the blog I guess dissolved I was like, I kind of want something to channel my energy in. I loved my job at ASOS, but at the same time, I felt like I needed to do something for myself. Some people are really comfortable working from people. But for me, I was like, I just want to have something that's mine that I can control and nobody can't take it away from me. And I was toying with the idea of starting up a magazine, but I wasn't really sure what it was going to be about. And I knew I wanted it to be something positive. I knew I wanted to showcase 
something. I just wasn't really sure. So I was just talking to a lot of people about it. Just like, hey, I'm thinking about starting this magazine. I don't really know what it's about. Don't know where I'm going to go with it. But I just quite like the idea of having something quite tangible to kind of give or sell. And the idea for the entrepreneurship came from my son because he was at that age where he wants to be like a music artist. He wants to be a footballer. He wants to be something, but he doesn't really want to work as hard for it. Right. I feel like at this like new generation has this almost like microwavable talent. They're like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put a video up on YouTube and I'm gonna become famous, or I'm gonna post some things on Instagram. I'm gonna become famous, and he, or I'm just gonna go and talk to blah blah. I'm gonna become famous. I was like, that's not how it works. The greatest artists, the greatest players, the greatest whoever all have worked so hard to get to where they are yeah they just don't share their struggle and there's so many people I know that are like that within my community Mm -hmm. so I thought one I tell these stories and then Sion can read it and become inspired and if he becomes inspired maybe other children may become inspired so that's where I guess the idea came from and then once I said I was going to do it I just did it I was like okay I need to make I told people I'm going to make this magazine I told people this is going to come out (laughs) this time I need to now make this happen hold myself accountable by like yeah. announcing it that's exactly that and I didn't have a clue I've never worked in it for a magazine before the most I knew from that side is how to produce shoots and I knew people that was it I'm not a designer at all and I literally artworked this entire magazine myself I just like learned tutorials on YouTube like spoke to a lot of people in the industry as well can you remember like what the app, like what the first, after you like told people about it, what, what your like starting point was? Was it structure or did you think about guests or did you start working on the visuals? The first thing I did was come up with five people I wanted to feature. Mm-hmm. And then I spoke to those five. I was like, hey, so I'm doing this thing. Hear me out. Do you want to be a part of it? And they're like, okay, cool. Like, why not? I was like, I'm going to do a shoot. I'm going to do all of this stuff. I was like, we're going to shoot it on film, not realizing that film was so freaking expensive. (laughs) I was like, I just want this like really editorial, cool look, not knowing that the money was going to come digital. (laughs) I spoke to this photographer, Jay Cammy, and he was like, yeah, I love the idea. All you need to do is just pay for the film and the printing, and I will shoot it for you. So I, organized like these shoots I also interviewed everybody and wrote the article myself because at the time I didn't realize that you could actually get people to do it for you for free (laughs) (laughs) also like I said coming from a very digital background now going in print space I guess I knew people that worked in that space but I didn't I guess I didn't really understand the process when you're starting something it's not like you had anything to take to people to like get them on board as well like it's all kind of up in your head until you've made the first one yeah you're right and that for me I was like I just want to get this body of work out and then if everybody really likes it then I can you know start thinking about the next one and how I can build a team around that so yeah the visuals came first then I did the interviews wrote all the articles and then to kind of bulk out the magazine I didn't want it to just be like full of interviews and images so reached out to a few people to put some of their work in it things that inspired you that were a bit different and also in my head I was always saying this magazine is something to inspire my son so I just wanted everything to relate back to him you know when people are always like who's your audience it's really nice for you to be able to have just a really clear sense yeah. of the audience it's like you know that audience so well because you know your son so well and you know like what him and his friends the conversations they're having so your sharp point is very sharp you know what I mean did you set yourself a budget 
no also as well I shouldn't say this as a producer because you need to plan everything but for me I was like okay I'm just gonna do shoot this once it's over go to the next stage once I shoot do the um, interviews after that's done write them that you know like put everything into in design create it and then send it to the printers not realizing that it's going to cost like 400 pounds to print and it's going to cost like 200 pounds to process all the images and like that kind of stuff and also yeah. the people that I'm bringing on these shoots I also have to pay for their travel and if I have them over a certain time I've got to pay for their food so I never in my head I never had a budget it was very much running garden Maybe that's good though, because sometimes when you're first starting something, maybe if you knew too much about what you were getting yourself into, you wouldn't have done it. Exactly. And there was one point where I was like, this is too much. Like for one, this is getting a bit too expensive. You don't have to do this. And I was like, I do. I've interviewed all these people. I've told them that this magazine has come in. If I don't do it because I can't, not necessarily afford the printing, but because I didn't want to fork out £400 of my own money to do it, I'm letting all these people down and myself yeah so I was like, just do it just pay for it and then you know for next time so you brought a photographer on, on board for the first issue but was that it other than that you did it all by yourself well and stylist for the cover shoot that was it and also like a girl at work created the logo for me friends and that would like read the articles and like proofread and so it wasn't just me but it was more like the main people that I said I would say worked on that issue was myself, a stylist, and um, a photographer, Jay mm-hmm. Cammy. Yeah, that was, that was And it. then, so then when you moved on to your second issue, you obviously had all the lessons from the first one. Oh, also, yeah. I probably should have asked as well, um, but this kind of relates to both. How did you go about distributing it initially? Because it's print only, right? There's no digital version of it. I wanted to stay off digital because I feel like it's so easy to get lost in the internet. And I just like the idea of someone having this print copy, maybe putting it away and then looking back in five years and finding it randomly. I'm like, oh my God, I remember this. I remember this t- the time when I like received some, read this copy. Almost brings that like nostalgic, nostalgia back. Um, yeah. And that's what I wanted to almost create like a memory. Yeah. When I got the copies back and the printers, I was like, how, how am I going to distribute it? <laughs> You're like, great. <laughs> yeah. I now have like 150 copies. How am I going to get them in people's hands? And I always said the first print run, I wanted to give out for free. I didn't want people to pay for it because also they don't know what they're paying for. Mm. I'm not that credible of a source to be like, do you know what? I, Michelle's product is going to be amazing. Let's just like invest. I'm not that credible. So for me, I'm just going to give it out to a few hundred, few people and go from there. So the cover story was a guy called Shane. And he is Mosak's manager. And I guess he had a bit of traction around his name because Mosak at the time was like really big at the time. He put it on his Instagram, it kind of blew up. And I just was just like, hey, I'm giving out 20 free copies. Please DM me if you want a copy. And like 50 people DM'd me for copies. So I just sent out 50 free copies. That's and awesome then, that you had that demand though. Like that was also, that also must have been really nice to be like, to go through a moment of being like, how am I going to get these out? And then be like, okay, great. Loads of people want them. <laughs> I know it was nice that people wanted it. And I think yeah. obviously the fact that Shane was on the cover helped. The thing is, I always want to highlight, highlight small businesses and young entrepreneurs and up and coming individuals. But ultimately the cover needs to help me sell copies as well and get, yeah. get people to even read this magazine. So in a way there has to be some commercial value behind it. So I have to kind of go down that commercial route when yeah. I'm picking people for the cover, which isn't 
the greatest thing, but it's the only thing I'm willing to compromise on that mag- on the magazine. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite a good approach. It's it's really is that it is a really um, difficult thing to get, get right, right, isn't it? Like getting the right blend of talent that enough people know versus people that you think are just really interesting and need a spotlight. Yes, yeah, so there's people in the in the magazine or the people. There's people that I've approached. I'm like, I would love for you to be on the cover because I think you're amazing. But then it's really hard because you don't have that much of a following for me to justify you being on the cover. Mm. And I hate that because working in for ASOS, working even working for Urban, working in agencies, it's always like, how many followers do you have? How many do you, do you know what I mean? For them to be grateful, which is not really nice, but. I'm hoping to get to a point with Eden Magazine. I don't have to do that. But as we're a startup, I'm having to. Yeah. Um, how did you um, How did you secure so yeah, him in the first place? So Shane, I knew I grew up with him. We're both in the same area. And I just knew, I knew Shane's story. I knew he was managing different artists. I knew the kind of story how we got with Mostak. So for me, I was like, he was just the obvious person. Mm-hmm. With Damshack. So I produced a small campaign, like a digital campaign for Champion, and we cast Damshack for it. He just had this amazing energy. I was like, this guy is like on fire. He's just full of life. But then he also had a really good story as well. Mm-hmm. And if you go on Damshack socials or if you talk to him, he's full of life and this amazing, like bubbly guy. But he actually has like a mass, like a big come up, like the way he came up. It isn't just, he wasn't just an Instagram star. Mm-hmm. He actually worked his way up. And I was like, I just think it's important for people to hear that because people will look at you and be like, oh, you know, he just bust because he was on, I don't know, I think I'm not Bates channel doing some like sketch. And I was like, actually, that's not how it happened. He, I think he was like a runner on like the BBC. He was like, worked on the Charlie Sloth for a bit and did like loads of little bits. He wasn't always that like hilarious funny guy on, on camera kind of thing. He basically worked his way up. So I admired that. So for him, I was like, I'd love, I'd love him to win the cover. And when I asked him, he was like, yeah, of course I'd do it. Yeah. That cover shot, by the way, is amazing. Thank you. That was shot by Stan from Take More Photos. So Take More Photos is like, I don't know if you've heard of it, but they are like an initiative that help like young photographers shoot stuff within the industry. That shoot was so fun. Um, like I said, working with Dumbjack is the best thing ever. He, I, if I could work for the rest of my life, I would. Like, he's just amazing. Oh, and also, particularly knowing you, like, he's such a crafter and a hard worker as well. It gives you an extra level of respect for people, I think. Yes, 100%. Did you have a few more people kind of writing and interviewing and, and contributing in the second episode? Yeah, so the second one... Episode? Like, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not what it's called. <laughs> yeah, but the second issue, I was like, okay... You can't do this by yourself because you're just not going to, you can't. I was like, I'm just going to see if I know anyone who's willing to write for this magazine, who's willing to shoot some stuff for me. And I just put some calls out on the dots. And I think on like a few other networks, and loads of people got back to me. This time I didn't do anything apart from like just put pieces together. Everything in issue two was commissioned. Do you have advertising in it? No, I did have advertising in it, but none that nobody paid for it, if that makes sense. So mm. I tried to secure some advertising, but because I was up against a bit of a deadline, mm. I was just like, you know what? I, I'm happy to, happy to just like take the hit on this. And the printers, they're called Love Print. They're a really good friend of my partner's. So he managed to get a really good deal for me on the printing. So I was like, that's all I really needed was yeah. um, money for printing. 
Yeah, I didn't shoot film. I was like, I was like, do you know what? Shoot how you want to shoot. And I also didn't realize that with editorials, with editorials, you say to like a photographer, hey, so I want to give you this a few pages in this magazine. You can go and shoot what you want and just send back the images. I didn't realize normally a photographer pays for everything. So mm-hmm. this time I was like, I'm not offering anybody anything unless they ask me. So I'm just going to say, hey, do you want to do this? And then once you start talking about money, then we can talk. But I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. And it was a good approach. Yeah. It um, <laughs> works better. <laughs> but I will say the next issue, I'm secure. I'm trying to secure funding and I want to pay everyone. I realised how lucky I was with issue two. But moving forward, I just don't think it's okay to not pay people, even if it's something. And I'm very fortunate, and I've realised throughout COVID-19 that I've been very fortunate to mm. still be working, to not, not have been made redundant. And there's a lot of people out there that's not. And I just don't think it it won't sit right with me if I make issue free and I don't pay everyone, mm. even if it's something. It's so hard, I'm trying to secure it? funding. Because you're like, you're investing your money into it and it's like, you're not getting paid like at that start stage. But I totally, I totally agree. I've like had that with loads of my creative projects. It just doesn't feel right. You just, yeah. you just want to be, you just want to be paying people. Exactly. And like I said, even if it's like something small, yeah. I want to, I just want to show you that I'm so grateful for the work you've done. And also I may not never work with you again. Mm. Not that you were good or anything, but I just may not. So at least I know that you were compensated for your work. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's not going to kind of hang over you as something that you're like, oh, I, I still need to find a way to credit that person back. So I wanted to ask, because you, the second issue was focused on social media. I wanted to get your opinion on social media, whether you think it's good or bad in general or both. So I have like a love-hate relationship with social media. <laughs> I love it because it's free marketing and you can connect with people that you would never necessarily connect with. For example, with Eden Zine, I would have never been able to connect with people like Damshat and other contributors. I would never have been able to kind of get the magazine as far as it had without social media. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have like certain opportunities that I have now without social media. But at the same time, it's a very ugly place as well. Because I grew up with the, I guess, like MSN era, um, <laughs> yeah. I kind of grew up when social media was starting. But, you know, I, I, was, I was still social outside as well. Whereas I have a 16-year-old who is always on Snapchat, always on Instagram, FaceTimes everybody, but they're not really having real conversations. It's just really weird. And I'm just like, oh my God, I wish you knew how funny it was to go outside and see your friends instead of just FaceTime them. And I've seen for his age group, especially how it can affect young people, even bullying, like something so small, like sending someone's picture around in a WhatsApp group is is bullying ultimately. And things like that, which I hate. And I'm kind of glad I've never had to experience that, but I know people that have experienced it. And also as well, social media gives credit to it. Like it allows certain people or certain collectives to have credibility, which they don't necessarily deserve. I was thinking actually kind of like what you said about the whole intention of where it came from to start Eden Zine. Definitely one of the things that I don't like about social media, that it is all about presentation a lot of people, it's totally false. 
I find people's true stories, hard work and focus, particularly in creative fields, to really make good stuff. You have to isolate, you have to get your head down. Some people seem to be able to do both, like be always online and still kind of create. But I find the two are a bit of a contradiction. And I don't think social media tells a true picture of that. It doesn't. And I'm very guilty of like sharing my best life on, on social media. And everybody thinks like, oh my God, your life is so amazing. I'm like, actually, it's really not. <laughs> I don't consciously show the best bit. But subconsciously, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm on a plane. Let me just Instagram me a bit going on a plane. Or, yeah. you know, I'm having a great time shooting in this tropical location. Let me just do that. But I'm not going to show you me up at two in the morning having to get this call sheet out. I'm not going to show that. Yeah. Because... In that moment, I'm fucking stressed. <laughs> All I want to do is get shit out. It can be very dangerous. But I will say for entrepreneurs and like young businesses, it is a really good tool to use. And if you can use it well, use it. Yeah. As you say, it's free. And yeah. in that sense, it does kind of level level the playing field a little bit. Yeah. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about culture and society off the back of that and just ask some quick fire type questions what are the things that are pissing you off about the world right now I mean (laughs) (laughs) well I mean we're in probably because this this will be going live a little while after where we're at right now so I should probably like give the context that we're recording this really I think about two weeks after the death of George Floyd and we're just probably coming to the end of the really intense period of lockdown so I don't know whether that will inform your answers but <laughs> may well do. I mean listen what's pissing me off right about now is what has happened with George Floyd but not just George Floyd what's happened with a lot of black young men that are dying in the hands of the police and I had this conversation with some people at work recently and this isn't the first time this has happened it's probably not going to be the last time but this is something that within like the black community, we have been hearing these stories, these headlines and news all the time. They get sent to our WhatsApp groups. They're on our Facebook groups. Like somebody is saying, look what happened to this person. You know, this person killed that, like the police killed another, another black person. Oh, another black person, another black person. I feel the reason why George Floyd's death sparked so much outrage is because we are in the middle of lockdown. Nobody has fuck all to do at the moment. So it's almost like come it has come at the right time I believe because had we would have been living our normal lives I don't think it would have sparked as much outrage people would have been too busy with their own work lives whatever's going on in their lives to even really stop and think actually this is really bad but because we don't really have much going on the world has had no choice but to listen yeah I hadn't even thought about that yeah yeah and I've I mean, I've had ups and downs of what's going on. Like I said, we've, I grew up in, in a city where we hated the police. We never called in the police to help us because for us, they were the enemy and they didn't help our communities. If anything, all they did was lock us up and put us into the system. We were stereotyped as a community that we were thugs and we were no good. So for us, the police have never been those people that are, that are there to protect us. That's just how it was. But now that everybody's kind of seeing that, and I'm not saying all police are like that, but just growing up, that's what I've experienced. Mm. And it's one of those things that it's like, well, like I said, my son has been stopped by police twice. Once he was in a school uniform coming, coming out of school, and the other time he was just like wearing a hoodie. And it's like, well, you're, you're stopping him because you heard that something had happened in the area, but he's just left school. So how could he be the 
how could he be the person that's done this? Why would you stop and search him? Why would, why would that even come to you? It you makes know, you he, think the descriptions they're hearing is like blackmail rather than... I'm just saying blackmail and then they just want to stop everything on black person. Yeah. It's horrible to hear. And I, I had to take a, I, I'm, I had to take a break. I'm not on um, Instagram, Snapchat or Facebook. I had to delete it from my phone because I was like, this is too much to consume. It's so overwhelming. It's so traumatic. And it made me really angry. It made mm. me really angry at like, the world. It made me really angry that there's people out there that even like think like that or think it's okay. I watch like protests and stuff and then you've got like racist people shouting stuff. Where does that ideology come from? Why do you think like that? And it just hurts. I don't want to be the person to have to educate you, but at the same time, it's like people need to be educated, but how are they going to educate themselves? And it just feels like as a black community, we've been done so wrong mm. and it's just so tiring yeah. and raining. And like, even now me thinking about it, so I'm feeling like really emotional because I just think, I really hope there's change. And I really hope something does happen for the better because I'm 32 now. I've gone through 32 years of my life feeling like, you know what, all you've got to do is just work hard, keep your head down and they won't bother you. And that's kind of how my mindset has been. And that's kind of what I'm teaching my son as well. Mm. But at the same time, that's not the right way to live. And we're basically living our lives in fear, ultimately. And that's, that's what we're taught from a very young age. I was having a conversation with someone after the protests and he was saying white communities and mainstream media are just like really shocked by what happened with George Floyd and what it unearthed or what it kind of like reminded everyone of. And he was like, as if racism hasn't always been a thing. It's, oh, wait, racism, like that's a bit of a problem. And he was like, this has been my life. This has been my entire life. He's right. And that's the thing. It's I think as well, because it doesn't personally affect you, for you, you're like, okay, well, this doesn't really affect me. So I'm just going to, I'm going to step away from it. I kind of act like I don't know what's going on. But you know, it, it's been there. I also think as well, the reason why a lot of people are waking up is because a lot of people are getting called out, especially companies, big corporations are getting called out. And they're like, big corporations also allowing it to happen as well. Mm. They're playing into this game too. So it's like the pace, I think the thing that's that's been, um, that companies have been forced to acknowledge is that if something changes in like the commercial landscape or the, the shape of the world, like everyone's spending more time on their phone, then they're like, right, we're putting a team behind it who are going to work out how we target mobile because we need to do it within the next two years. Otherwise we're going to fall behind. Yeah. All of a sudden companies are like, yeah, we've been pushing our diversity and inclusion initiatives for 20 years. If this was yeah, going digital, that progress takes six months, a year. You put a task force behind it. You don't put a couple of people who do it on the side of their main job behind it and expect that things will change. And so I think, yeah, all of a sudden companies are being forced to to acknowledge that slow is just not okay. This diversity and inclusion, for me, I'm black and I'm a woman. But a lot of these companies, for them, they're like, okay, diversity and inclusion. It means that, you know, we might ha- we may have, like, a trickle of women on our board, but that's diversity to them. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not like having, like, people from other races on your you board. Maybe you all went to the same university, so it's like... it's So, <laughs> dig deeper. And these people are around. Like, these people are looking for j- jobs, and there are those people there. But, you know, I, like I said, I just really hope it's not a PR stunt with these companies. I really hope a lot of people stick to their word and do do change from within. 
I really hope the system changes. I really hope law enforcement changes. And I just pray that they just stop killing us. That's all. That's all I want. Michelle, what gives you hope? Not maybe just in that context, but just general, generally in life, what are the things that give you hope? I'll say my family, definitely. I think to the fact just waking up every day and just, I know it sounds so cheesy, but just waking up every day and just being thankful that I'm here, that my son is okay, that my family's okay. And the fact that I'm just surrounded by like a, a great people who want the best for me. So cheesy, but yeah. <laughs> but it's nice, yeah. it's human. Who inspires you? I'd say my mum inspires me. She came over here when she was like 22 and brought her sisters over here. She raised me, my brother, my sister by herself. She's just this strong woman. She's always got a smile on her face. She's not negative at all. She's so welcoming. Like she's the reason why like I was able to have a career. If it wasn't for her, I don't know where I would be. Like she believed in me and she took my son on and she was like, you know, we can do this. And if I didn't have someone like that in my corner, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know where I would be. Yeah. My mum, I would say. Another question for you about culture, really, and you just, because obviously being such a part of it, because it's a question I've been asking recently. Do you think musicians and people in the public eye should be role models? Because you know a lot of like, I don't want to be a role model. I didn't sign up to be a role model. What do you kind of think on that? In short, yes. Yes, I do. I, and I'm saying I'm saying yes because I'm a mother, but also as well, I'm a, I, I kind of understand from like a human side that you, nobody's perfect and everybody's going to make mistakes. I'm not perfect and I would hate for someone to kind of put me up on this platform just to almost like tear me down because of the stuff that I've done mm. it is a bit of a hard one but I feel like if you've been given that platform give it to mm. good use I don't know if I'm saying that right but yeah yeah, yeah put it to good use I think as well what you're touching on a little bit is like the fact that you are going to have an impact there is a reality that if you're in the public eye the media aren't necessarily going to portray you as you. So you could do, I mean, there's no one who's, who, everyone's got flaws. So, so you could do like everything to the best of your ability and always try and be good and do the right thing and still have a public persona that just focuses on your flaws or just focuses, focuses on two things that you did once when you were younger or something like that or, or really skews you. But um, sometimes people might be rejecting the idea of a role model, but actually because they're being portrayed in a way that is not really them. And they're like, well, I don't, I can't control that. So I don't want that pressure on me. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. In terms of entrepreneurship, are there some like nice little nuggets or things that you've learned from doing the zine, either from your own experience or from people that you've interviewed? I would definitely say if you want to do something, just do it. Just do it. What I've learned with the magazine is that I said I was going to do something and I'd done it and I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have a clue. And you don't realise how many things you learn along the way. And you might not get it right the first time. You might not get it right the third time. It will come. Mm -hmm. And I always learn from my mistake. I'm that kind of person that's like, you know what, I fucked up. But guess what? I'm never going to fuck up again. I'm never going to make that mistake again because of how I felt when I did fuck up. And I'm a big believer in that. So I think if you want to do something, just go and do it. I should really take my own advice on this as well, to be honest. I feel like you have, but then maybe I don't know all the ideas that are in your head. <laughs> um, but yeah, do it. And um, trust the process as well. Trust the process. And don't be afraid of hard work. 
don't be scared that someone puts something in your face and you're like, oh my God, this is so scary. It's making me really anxious. It's a lot. It's overwhelming. Don't be scared of it because once you get out the other end, you're going to feel so much better for it. It's like almost like running a marathon. You start off and you're like, oh my God, this is too much. Like you're literally five minutes in. You're like, I want to stop. (laughs) You're like, this is the best feeling in the world. I've done it. Mm. I don't have to do it again now, but I've done it. Do you know what I mean? And everyone who's done something that you look up to went through the same thing. So you can feel a sense of camaraderie that you're all in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, final quick question for you. Are you a big reader? It does kind of rely on that. (laughs) Good. Um, What's the book that you would most recommend to people and why? The Power of Now Mm -hmm. by um, Eckhart Eckhart Tolle. I think it's Tolle. It's pronounced that way, I think. That book literally changed my life, honestly. And the when I launched issue one I bought that book for all the panelists thank you because it's one of those have you read it I you know I don't think I have I think I've read one of his other books and I've heard so many people talk about that book and you know and you're just like I don't know why I haven't read it I that's a good book when you first get into it it's like a bit of a hard read then you get into it you're like oh my god and it's one of those things he's talking it's common sense but he gives you examples you're like oh my god this is so right and Ultimately, what he's talking about is stop focusing on the, the, the past or focus, don't focus on the future, focus on the present. Because whatever's happening in the present is what's important. So, yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Where can people find you? And also, Eden, where's the best place for them to follow and learn about uh, the magazine? Keep an eye out for the next issue. So you can find me on Instagram. It's michelle.hung underscore. <laughs> <laughs> underscore studio and you can find Eden um, on Instagram we we've now started like a Facebook page and we have a website where you can buy the zine so our Instagram is eden.zine and the website is www.edenzine.co.uk thank you so much and thank you everyone for listening um, we will be back next week and enjoy the rest of your weeks yay <laughs> <laughs> bye what up,